Masters in Comics. In these podcasts, we'll be chatting to comics creators and getting a unique insight into the comics industry. First up, we have Dave Gibbons. Hi Dave, uh, welcome to the first uh, Masters in Comics podcast. Um, I wonder if we could start by talking about your connection to Dundee. My connection to to Dundee, yes, it's, it stretches back into the mists of time, Phil. As you as you know, my um, my grandfather, my grandfather was a customs officer, and um, his first major posting was actually to Dundee, where he lived in uh, Broughty Ferry with his wife, my granny, and uh, their son Chester, my my dad, um, and Chester must have been about five, six, seven years old around that time. Um, and they lived in a boarding house. And um, before they were moved on to a rather palatial Broughty Ferry bungalow. And it, in this boarding house was um, an artist who worked for DC Thompson. And his name was uh, H.M. Tallentire, Henry M. Tallentire. And he specialised in sort of uh, anthropomorphic comics you know, sort of talking elephants and tigers and things like that. And he, he obviously must have made a um, quite an impression on my dad, um, uh, you know, being somewhat of a kind of bohemian um, arty type. And I believe he encouraged my dad to draw and he even gave my dad a, um, a paint box, which which I still have. And when I was growing up, my, my dad would talk to me about, oh, good old talent. He was a great artist. And, um, you know, my dad would buy me comics and um, such like. And so that was my um, initial connection to Dundee. Um, I mean, if you want to hear it, it does go on to be a little bit of an anecdote. That Shall I, shall I tell you the anecdote? Go on, why not? Yeah. Well, um, Many years after this, I, I was on the internet one day um, and somebody mentioned H.M. Talentar. I believe it was on John Freeman's Down the Tubes blog. And I sort of told the story that I've that I've just told you. Um, and amazingly, Talentar's son read it and corrected me on a couple of points of detail. And I wrote him an email, uh, you know, going into things rather more fully. And he was quite touched that somebody, you know, remembered his dad after all this time. And in fact, that, you know, um, it had had such an effect on my career, because arguably if my dad hadn't sort of got that introduction to comics and that interest in comics and drawing, then maybe I wouldn't have had it. And I wouldn't have ended up doing what I've done very happily for most of my life. Um, and he was quite touched to um, hear that. Um, and he uh, he emailed back and sent some photos. He said, I, th- I thought you might be interested to see what my dad looked like around about the time that he knew your dad. And he sent a variety of pictures of this Henry Tallentire, who was clearly somebody who didn't only like drawing, but liked amateur dramatics as well. And there were pictures of him posing, obviously, for sort of stage productions. And there was a picture of him in a Pierrot costume, like a clown costume, standing in front of a bush in a garden, a black and white photo, obviously from the 20s. And I saw this photo and I thought, that's really strange. I I think I've seen that before. So I looked through our family archive of photos and lo and behold, there's a picture of my dad, aged about seven, in that garden, in front of the same bush, 
in a cut-down child's version of exactly the same Pierrot costume. So it was the most spooky connection, you know, that, that was made over so many years. Um, but, you know, kind of showed, for, for all its kind of wrong things, just what a wonderful thing the um, internet can be. Um, and uh, indeed, I started my career working for DC Thompson's. I worked through an agent in London, uh, and a lot of my early work was done for DC Thompson. Um, and I got to know the people there. And indeed, one day when I was up in Dundee, I, I believe um, you um, came with me uh, to the DC Thompson archive, where they'd very kindly excavated some of Talentire's drawings. And I found myself looking at work that, you know, possibly he'd drawn, what, 100 years ago, um, when he knew my dad. So... You know, um, I, I I do feel a great warmth and, and connection to Dundee just for those kind of very kind of emotional kind of family reasons. Yeah, and we actually did a lot of exhibition, uh, if you remember, Dave, when you were up, when we gave you uh, your honorary degree uh, and we, we managed to get um, DC Thompson's to lend us some of that artwork uh, to put on a little show. So what was it like being reunited with that work after 40 odd years? Well, it, well, it, it, was, a, it was a strange thing because I remember going to the DC Thompson Archive, which, as you know, is basically kind of the size of an aircraft hangar filled with industrial shel shelving with brown paper parcels full of original artwork with numbers on them. But as I understood it at the time, Despite the fact the packages had numbers, the guy who had the book that had the numbers in it that said what was in which package had retired and nobody knew where the notebook was. So it was I, I, I almost felt like standing there and shouting out to the shelving. Hello, boys. Daddy's here, but I don't know where you are. But anyway, they 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 did eventually dig some of my artwork out, out which in itself I probably hadn't seen for 30, maybe 40 years. Uh, so that that was a great thrill to see that, and I was pleased to see that um, I'd improved quite quite a bit from those days. You know, I mean, I would have to say, um, DC Thompson obviously are uh, you know um, uh, you know one of the two great British publishing houses of comics, and they're renowned for being uh, you know a little bit old fashioned in their work practices. But I must say, I'm eternally grateful to them because. A lot of my early work was done for them. It was published uncredited, which is great because it wasn't work that I'm tremendously proud of. And although they didn't pay much money, they would give wonderful critiques, wonderful practical critiques on the storytelling, you know, telling you to focus on certain things, to show reaction on people's faces. And that was really where, you know, not having gone to art school, I really got my nuts and bolts training in in how to tell stories in pictures yeah a lot of the people that that we've had in who started their career at dc thompson say the same same thing actually that it was uh, a really great grounding and and and, on, and uh, it really helped them when they went on to to work for their next big gig and i, I suppose chronologically speaking uh you went to ipc after that is that fair to say um yes i mean i i, I worked for dc thompson for um, a couple of years and um, along the way um, I did other odd jobs I did a few advertising jobs I did a series for Nigeria um, in tandem with Brian Bolland 
um, some people who ran an advertising agency in, in, in Nigeria realised, I think, that there was, as they say, a gap in the market for original Nigerian comic books featuring black Nigerians rather than the comics they get impo- got imported, which was sort of full of, of white blonde tennis players and World War Two pilots. And so they, through my agent, Barden Press Features, they commissioned myself and Brian Bolland and Carlos Esquera and Ron Smith and a few other people who later went on to do stuff for IPC to produce these comics for Nigeria. And, and Brian and I did a character called Power Man, who's essentially a black Superman. Um, and we it, it was a fortnightly comic and we did an episode a month each uh, just to keep the thing roll, rolling along. Um, and that, again, was quite an um, educative process. And and also it was something that the people at 2000 AD saw that showed that I could draw superheroes and, if you like, black superheroes, not that there's any real difference, but, you know, um, they they thought that I might be the person to draw the Harlem heroes who who were the essentially the Harlem Globetrotters with jetpacks on playing futuristic sport. So, um, yeah, so I, I started working for 2000 AD in, uh, I don't know, I think it was 1976, and I was actually in the first issue. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you had quite a, a long run, I suppose. So you went from Harlem Heroes and eventually uh, ended up uh, drawing uh, Rogue Trooper, which is a fan favourite. I think everyone's <laughs> a big fan of that. Uh, and then... Seems to be. Yeah, and then... Um, then, then you you actually went over and started working on the Doctor Who comic strip. So, how did that come about? Well, yeah, I mean, it it, it was great to work on two thousand AD. I mean, it was exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. There were so many of us who had grown up reading American comic books and British comic books, and and unlike the previous generations, we really wanted to do comics. We weren't using it as a way station to becoming illustrators or novelists. You know, we really loved comics. And so 2000 AD came along at exactly the time when people like me and, again, Brian Bolland, Mick McMahon, Kevin O'Neill, um, you know, were, were, were all at the... We had enough experience, but we still had the kind of fire of youth that we were able to deliver exactly what they wanted on, on 2000 AD. And there was a wonderful esprit de corps um, and I, as you say, I drew Harlem Heroes and I drew Dan Dare for a bit, um, which was kind of a childhood dream come true to draw Dan Dare, although there was a huge differences between my version or the 2000 AD version and the classic Eagle Frank Hampson version. But still, at least I get to write Dan Dare on my CV. Um, and um, yeah, then, then there was um, Rogue Trooper, which was very much in response to a reader survey you know, readers were asked what kind of stories did they want to read in 2000 AD. And from a list, they almost unanimously chose Future War. So Jerry Finley Day and I um, created Road Trooper. Um, I was never quite happy with the direction of it. And um, um, I, I, um, I, I didn't draw it for very long. But I think chronologically speaking, I worked on Doctor Who before that. And I believe at one point... I was doing Doctor Who and Rogue Trooper kind of in in tandem. And the way that Doctor Who came about was that uh, Des Skin, who was then the managing editor of Marvel UK, 
who had the who'd bought the rights to Doctor Who, asked me if I'd like to do the inking on a Doctor Who comic strip that was going to be penciled by Paul Neary, who was the was the art editor there. And I said, well, really, if I'm going to do it, I'd like to do the whole thing. Did did some samples, which they were very happy with. And then I had a brainwave because I'd, you know, I'd with in all my time on 2000 AD, I'd never worked with Pat Mills or John Wagner, who to me were the, the best writers um, working on the comic. And I, I heard from somebody that they'd done some Doctor Who TV pitches that had never come to anything. And I thought, wow, this might be a way that I could get to work with them. So I approached them and they spoke to Des, who gave them a better deal than they were getting at uh, Fleetway, at um, IPC on 2000 AD. Um, and um, everybody was very happy. I got to work with a couple of great writers. Um, Des got, uh, uh, um, he kind of bagged the two best writers on 2000 AD and in all modesty, one of their top artists. Um, and um, um, uh, Pat and John were able to finally make money from their pitches that they hadn't been able to sell from the BBC. So uh, it, it was a really happy arrangement. And I stuck with that for several years, sort of really right up until uh, I was recruited by the Americans. Yeah, that, that's interesting because you said earlier on that, you know, you didn't go courting the sort of attention from America, but they kind of came to find you. And it's kind of the first instance of that happening. Yeah, I mean, it was the strangest thing. I mean, I'd been over to New York uh, in the 70s and taken my samples with me and received the sort of thanks, but no thanks from, from D.C., um, and I, I also went to Marvel and I got a kind of a vague, uh, yeah, um, we'll be in touch from uh, Marvel, which I never followed up on. And maybe I should have done, although, you know, the, my life would have taken a radically different course if I had at that point, I think. Um, but yeah, um, I got I got a phone call in, um, I don't know, the early 80s from uh, Nick Landau, who's the guy behind Forbidden Planet and Titan Books. And he he was very friendly with a lot of people on the editorial staff at DC. And he told me that Dick Giordano and Joel Lando, who are a couple of DC Comics senior editors, were in Britain and they wanted uh, to arrange meetings with British artists with a view to recruiting them to draw DC Comics. So I obviously jumped at the chance and went along with Mick McMahon, who was my uh, studio mate at the time. We shared a studio. Um, and sure enough, um, they said, yeah, we want you to come and work for us. Um, we're going to pay you this much, which was more than we were getting from any British publisher. We're going to give you reprint money. We'll give you royalties on sales. Um, we'll even give you the board to draw the artwork on. So it was a, a complete no-brainer, no you know. Um, and having been a huge fan of DC Comics as a kid, it was it was like a dream come true. Um, so, yeah, so, th so that set me off to work for, for DC Comics. We could never work out the logic of why they'd come to recruiters because God knows there must be enough comic artists in the in the USA. But the theory that some cynical uh, um, American comic artist buddies of mine said later was that DC was expecting some trouble from the, the artists that they were going to form a union or a guild and that it would be really handy to have some kind of offshore talent that would still keep DC Comics going if they went on strike or something like that. Of course, 
history history shows that whenever there's been any trouble in the in the American comic book industry, uh, Brits have not been far from the barricades. So um, I don't think that really would have would have worked. And of course, as we form friendships and relationships with um, our American um, equivalents, we certainly felt that that we were their brothers and sisters and. Um, that scheme, if it ever was a real thing, and it may well not have been, it may just be artist pa- paranoia. Um, you know that that eventuality, thankfully, never came to pass. So was it was it quite daunting to work on these characters that had been kind of childhood heroes, I suppose, of, of, of you. You know, um, it must have been quite intimidating. You know, getting that first gig and drawing something like Green Lantern or Superman or whatever it was. Mm. How did you how did you tackle that? Well, it's funny. I mean, I think there was a bit of the arrogance of youth, you know, that it it didn't feel particularly intimidating. I remember with the first few jobs taking extra, extra care, um, you know, to get them just exactly right. And, you know, obviously with the first one that I sent off, really sweating that I got a good response to it, which I did. The first thing I actually drew for them was um, The Creeper, which was a backup in uh, Flash, um, and uh, Creeper was a, a Steve Ditko um, cre- creation, and uh, this particular new series was going to be written by a guy called Carl Gafford, who actually was best known as a colorist at that time, and the editor was a guy called Ernie Colon. And I, I, you know, I did spend extra time to make this just right, but because Carl was quite an inexperienced writer, and arguably Ernie quite an inexperienced editor. In fact, they were probably less experienced in what they were doing than I was in drawing. Um, well, they were for sure. Um, and um, um, they rewrote the story after I'd done the artwork, and all my beautifully composed pages were chopped up and repasted in a different order. Um, so um, it was a strange in, in, introduction. In fact, starting off with DC was a little bit of a creaky thing altogether because apparently what they wanted me for was Star Trek. They were buying the license to Star Trek and they'd seen that I could draw likenesses from what I'd done on Doctor Who and do science fiction and they wanted me to draw that. I would have hated to do Star Trek. It's an absolute nightmare to have to draw, you know, gangs of, of of likenesses of people on every page and um, in fact um I, I think if i had done it i'd have done it the way that an italian artist called alberto giolitti did it and he had it down to a real fine thing he would when he was drawing star trek for gold key you get one picture that was the enterprise in space with balloons coming from it one view one shot that was a, a rear view of everybody looking at a monitor one um, silhouetted view of everybody on on the deck and one really good close-up of one of the actors. Uh, and I think that would be the only way you could you could do that. Anyway, I, I didn't end up doing that um, and I was given backups to do. And the weird thing was I was told by the editors, oh, if you make a good job of these backups, we may have regular work for you. Whereas my understanding was very much that I did have regular work anyway. So um, I did t- I did two episodes of The Creeper, which really didn't work. But I did a few Green Lantern core backup stories for Green Lantern, which was one of my other favourite DC comics. And they were a lot better because they were essentially like the 2000 AD Future Shocks. You know, they were short kind of snap ending stories. And I got to draw characters who were Green Lanterns and that they wore the uniform. But I was free to invent 
characters and worlds and civilizations and spaceships and everything. Um, and that was a really good experience. And I really, really enjoyed that. And on the strength of that, um, I was offered the lead strip in Greenland, and which was which was just great. Well, you actually you actually did end up then kind of drawing a strip with lots and lots of characters in it, but at least it was on your own terms. <laughs> you know? That's true. Um, That's true. So so yeah so so eventually um, I suppose we we have to talk about Watchmen. So uh, so going on from there, yeah. how did <laughs> how did Watchmen come about? How did Watchmen come about? Well, um, um, Alan Moore and I got to know each other quite well working for 2000 AD. As, as I say, there was this tremendous kind of esprit de corps and we'd, we would meet up at Comic Marts in the, in the, that used to be held at the Westminster Central Hall. Um, and also there was, a, um, there was an organisation called the Society of Strip Illustration where a lot of us used to meet for a, a, a drink every month. And I'd got to know Alan quite well, and we'd done some future shock stories. And I knew from the very beginning that even on these short, you know, three or four page uh, shock ending future shocks, that Alan was an amazing writer, and I wanted to do more with him. Um, and we'd we'd done a story in particular called Chrono Cops, which was a kind of dragnet in in time. It was about these. Uh, cops who roamed space and time stopping people from changing the future um, and we did it in the style of a mad comic parody of Dragnet and it was an incredibly involved story where um, you know I had to get stats of panels and paste them in and change little items of them and put details in that you wouldn't see until that you know a really a really complex thing and we saw then that we could do really complicated stuff together and really enjoyed doing it and although you know we were obviously very different people we had a similar background and similar taste particularly in comics um and then i was recruited by dc and after doing green lantern for a while um i got a little bit disenchanted with it and uh I I spoke to Alan and said, you know, maybe we could do something. I seem to be established at DC. Maybe you could write something and I could draw it and we could do that. So he did a wonderful um, um, outline for um, Challenges of the Unknown, um, who, you know, in a sense were like DC's Fantastic Four. Um, that, that, and this story involved the whole of the DC universe. There were crossovers, there were merchandising possibilities. Um, I was going to send it to DC and they said, oh, don't bother. We've already given challenges to somebody else. They had no idea of who Alan Moore was at that time. And then um, Alan came up with another idea and we worked up this treatment. I did some sketches for John Johns, Manhunter from Mars. And, and the idea for that was it was going to be set in the 50s when the sort of communist scare was on and the, the UFO scare. And it was going to be about small town America that was paranoid. This particular town was paranoid that there were, there were aliens living amongst them. And who they set to investigate this was police detective John Jones, who, of course, only we knew was, in fact, a Martian himself. So there were all sorts of possibilities there for, for fun. Again, they said at DC, no, we've already promised John Jones to somebody, so think again. And it wasn't long after that that Len Wein, who was the editor and the writer of Green Lantern, called me up and asked me if I had the phone number of a British writer called Alan Moore. So I, 
I I was happy to give Len Alan's number. Apparently he phoned up Alan and Alan just thought it was some friends playing a prank and just put the phone down on Len. Anyway, Len, Len eventually got in touch with Alan and offered him Swamp Thing. So, and and as we all know, you know, Alan completely transformed. It was really quite a moribund character into something amazing. Um, and DC clearly yeah. thought, well, maybe he could do the same for some other characters. And they just acquired uh, a group of superheroes who had been published by Charlton Comics. Uh, and they wanted to get Alan to do his take on those. And I, I heard about that and got in touch with Alan and said, you know, maybe this is the thing we could do together. And he said, yeah, I th- think you'd be perfect for it, Dave. So um, that was where we started. When I first saw the outline, it did feature the Charlton characters. DC very quickly realised that, that these characters, they just paid a lot of money for. They didn't really want them all to turn out to be psychos or murderers. And so asked us to come up with with some characters of of, of our own, which which we did, um, and that became Watchmen. So suppose working for DC and not having ownership became an issue. Yes, it was. Although you know, um, when we first set out on Watchmen, I mean, we were relatively naive. We, you know, it had never been a possibility that you could keep ownership of characters. Clearly, with Watchmen in as much as they were our creations, they actually weren't established DC characters. We maybe could have held out for creator ownership. I don't think DC would have given it to us or would have given it to us without a big struggle. And, you know, I have to say, we were quite naive about it. I mean, when when we got the contract for it, I looked at it and there were a couple of things in it I didn't like. And I phoned up Alan. I said, oh, what do you think of the contract? He said, oh, I've, I've already signed it. I'm going to post it back. I said, well, hold on a minute. I think there's a couple of things in there that, that need to be sorted out. And even then, we, you know, we, we, uh, we were still very, very um, uh, uh, generous in what we gave DC um, con- contractually. But anyway, that's what we did at the time. I, I harbour no ill will about it at all. Um, you know, it, we, we were all breaking new ground. And it's only in retrospect that you think, God, if I knew then what I know now. But in the course of doing Watchmen, of course, it became apparent to us that, you know, you could retain your rights. And um, I got to know Frank Miller uh, quite well because, you know, Watchmen and Dark Knight were out very much at the same time. And we quite often found ourselves in the eye of the same hurricane. And we 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 got on very well together and thought it'd be, be great to do something together. And what we were absolutely clear about was that we were not going to work on characters that were owned by anybody else. So from the very beginning, Martha Washington was going to be owned by us. And we also thought we'd break new ground by not just going with DC or Marvel, but we'd go with Dark Horse, who we thought were doing some really interesting comics and who had other friends and acquaintances of ours working with them. And Dark Horse were prepared to give us literally anything we wanted you know, because after coming off Watchmen and Dark Knight, we were like hot stuff, and um, we we were a big coup for them. And they actually would have done Martha Washington and made no money from it at all. But we we felt that that was a little bit like um, turning the tables, and it wasn't quite the right response. Having been uh, you know worked over by publishers to then as soon as we could work over a publisher. Um, so we we got a very generous deal on it, and we did 
retain all copyright and um, you know for all future uses of it um, so um, that was good and that felt very refreshing it's so nice to own your own characters and be completely in charge of their destiny and of course should they do well in other media or even do well in the existing media you have the potential to, to financially you know do much better from it so yeah you you said um you know you were sort of cutting new ground there and and, and to some extent ahead of your time i suppose I, I would say and and i suppose that that kind of bleeds into your process as well so obviously you've embraced the digital age and uh would you say <clears> that that the crossover point was when you were when you were doing the uh, martha washington stuff was there a point when you were producing that when technology started to come through yeah, it was strange. I mean, it was apparent to me for a long time that, that you know, computers would have a place in the production of comics. Um, I mean, um, back in the early 90s, uh, around about the time probably that I started the first series of uh, Martha Washington, um, I'd done some work with a games company over here called Revolution, um, who, who I worked with on a game called Beneath the Steel Sky, which is uh, uh, much more due to their efforts than mine, I've always felt, a kind of classic of gaming. It's, it's a game that even today people speak of as being um, a classic. And indeed, it was recently repurposed on the iPhone and the iPad and the, um, the uh, Android um, tablets as well. Um, and I did some artwork for that on the computer, you know, doing sprites that I literally assembled pixel by, by pixel. So it's a very crude form of computer graphics. But then we would, um, you know, fully draw and paint using tr traditional methods, the backgrounds for the game, and then scan those in. And I can vividly remember seeing the first background scanned and on a huge then 20-inch uh, um, Apple um, display and thinking, wow, this looks fantastic. This 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 glows. This this is alive. And then, um, in the course of working on the first Martha Washington series, which we did by the traditional blue line process, which is where you have a a light blue print of the black and white artwork done on a piece of watercolor paper that is then coloured using traditional media and has a flap over it, which is the line work in black, um, and is a very laborious, almost Dickensian way of doing doing comics then I became aware that uh, you know image comics and some others were starting to use digital coloring um, and um, I got in touch with a friend of mine called Angus Mackay who I've known since the mid 70s and he was always a great evangelist for uh, computers and um, I said look I'd, I want the next series of Martha to be colored digitally would you be able to do it and he said yeah, but the computer I've got isn't powerful enough. So I said, okay, you know, I I want to get into using a computer as well. So how about I'll buy you a computer as an advance on your fee for colouring it, and I'll buy myself the same computer, and then while you're colouring it, you can teach me how to use the computer. And he said, fine. So we had a very happy relationship where I'd, uh, you know, send him the stuff I'd scan my artwork, send it to him, which in those days of dial-up modems was, was an overnight business, even for a couple of pages. And then he'd send me back the colours and then I could check them. And it was just the wonderful relief of thinking, oh, you know, that, for instance, on the first cover, he'd coloured something metallic blue and it was really supposed to be a piece of leather. And I, I remember saying to him, oh, Angus, I, I really need you to change the 
colour of that. You know, it's blue and it should be brown. And he went, click, okay, done it. Uh, and that was a re- that was a revelation because up until then you you'd be you wouldn't see the colouring until the thing was in print. But here we were able to exactly dictate what it was going to look like and make any kind of changes with a minimum of fuss. So it became really apparent to me from then that you know in in the production stages of of comics at least the computer was invaluable. Then um, I remember John Byrne um, actually made a digital font of my hand lettering and used it to letter the first couple of uh, Hellboy stories, which he wrote with Mike Mignola. Um, and uh, it was really weird to see something that looked like it had been lettered by me, but I'd never read it. Um, and then um, Richard Starkings, who used to work for Marvel UK, he went on to found a company called Comicraft, who specialised in digital comic book lettering. And he made me a, a proper font of my own lettering. And so from those beginnings for colouring and lettering, I've used the computer quite a lot. And more recently, as the software has become friendlier to draw on, and you've had wonderful advances like the Wacom Cintiq drawing tablet, you know, it feels almost as natural for me now to draw digitally uh, as it does to do in um, analogue. So, um, yeah, it's it's been a really interesting learning curve at the end of the day computers are just um, another tool and you've got to be in charge of them rather than them running you but um, yeah they've great greatly changed and improved the experience of producing comics yeah I think you're 100% right we had um, John Higgins up uh, the other year mm-hmm. and uh, you know he was talking about the the, the very uh, laborious process of colouring Watchmen compared to when he recolored yeah. it uh, for the Absolute Edition, and it it just seemed like a very labour intensive uh, process. And, oh. and the same with lettering as well. And I think that's I always find that interesting about your work is that you did letter your own work, which was actually quite unusual. Um, you know, yes. I, I mean, I didn't see a lot of no. other artists doing that. No, well, I mean, I. I basically got into comics by doing balloon lettering and, um, you know, hang, um, and it was part of my ed- education. I used to, I used to deliver lettered pages to um, the IPC um, editorial and hang around and get to know other artists and get to look over artists' shoulders and also to spend a lot of time with finished original artwork because British comics were lettered on the fully finished penciled and inked artwork. So every week I'd get a bundle of original art pages and it might be somebody like uh, John Stokes or Leo Baxendale or Ken Reed or, you know, uh, um, Solano Lopez, wonderful South American artist. And I'd get to study this artwork as I lettered it. And it was and that and I could think, oh, he's drawn that with a pen, but he's used a brush for that and he's watered down his ink so he can get a finer line. Oh, and then he's cut back into it with with white. That's how you get that effect. And also to get the feeling of of how to draw at that larger scale, because the artwork was usually done twice up and you can be much looser with it and much cruder and it'll shrink down and look really, really sharp. So that lettering was my way into comics, really. And I've always considered the lettering to be an essential part of the page composition. And I, it would always be the first thing that I inked in on a page to make sure that I had room for the, for what I wanted to draw. And in the case of Watchmen, I, I 
don't think it could have been done unless I had lettered my own work because I was able to control where the lettering was, you know, very, very finely. Um, so, uh, and it's also a stage that I really enjoy. You know, you pencil the job out and then you in, and then you go back through it and rule it up to be lettered and ink the lettering in. And you sort of, it's like you're having a, a wander through what you've done and a chance to reassess what you've done. And it also means that you've got, you've got an ink line on the page so you've kind of murdered the threat of the page of the blank page um so um yeah i i I used to really enjoy doing hand lettering but there are certain laborious aspects to it like ruling out all those lines um and um I, i didn't ever get to the stage that some comics letterers have got to where they they letter without drawing lines that would that's a little bit too advanced for me um but yeah so um but but it's so much simpler now that um it's all digital but it but it is a still a weird thing i mean i remember picking up a copy of dc thompson's dandy and the whole comic had my hand lettering in it and it was just i thought i don't don't remember doing this and in in the very same week <laughs> in the very same week i picked up a dc comics superman and that was all lettered in my hand lettering. So um, it's yeah, it's a it's 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 a strange thing, but it's very very flattering when somebody likes your hand lettering enough to uh, to use it. Sure, I, I I mean I could see I could see they've also used it on the new Watchmen books that they're producing as well. So it, it, it's going to live on forever potentially. Your font, I think, but yeah. it's a very clear font and it's very distinctive. It's very much you, and I think. It's really interesting. It's kind of underestimated. Lettering's always very underestimated. I think that you could tell uh, how good a page is, or how good a letter is, or how good an artist is if you take away the lettering and it still reads, or you take away the art and and it still flows. You know, so if you're doing both yes. of those, then you're you're actually you're making the storytelling much clearer. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Good lettering is one of those things, one of those arts that conceals itself, because if it's well done, you barely notice it, but you can add a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of finesse, and um, um, yeah, it's particularly the skill of ballooning, which is, which is what it's called, you know, how, how you place the word balloons on, on the page, and a good letterer will be very inventive. And there's all sorts of dodges you can now do digitally where you can actually fractionally reduce the size of the lettering or the width of it, you know. Um, so a good a good letterer armed with a digital toolbox can do wonders with uh, lettering. And I think someone once likened it to um, a soundtrack on a movie you know, if it's a good soundtrack, you don't notice it. If it's scratchy or it's noisy, you do, and it really spoils the whole movie. And I think that's the case with uh, lettering as well. How do you feel about film adaptations of comics? Well, I mean, the, the first thing I would say is that I think comics stand as a, as a complete and honourable medium in their own right. And I've never viewed it that it's the kind of the ultimate success of a comic book to be adapted into a movie. Um, and s- certainly with the things of mine that have been turned into m- movies, uh, it-, it was something that's really separate from what we were doing in the comic book. Uh, and I mean, um, you know, adaptations are always a strange beast anyway. I mean, a- a- adapting prose into comic books has its difficulties. Adapting comic books into movies has its difficulties because 
you're doing things in an, in another medium that have been designed to work well in in the first medium. So with something like Watchmen, I mean, um, I think it was on the whole a really good movie. I think it's got some sublime moments in it. It's got other bits that maybe don't work as well. But Zack Snyder, who I know pulled everything he had into it, as did his whole team, he, he was kind of caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place because if he faithfully adapted the comic book, he, he would be criticised for not making such a good movie and not actually taking hold of it. On the, on, on the other hand, if he'd kind of thrown a lot of the comic book out, he would have been condemned for, for you know, disrespecting the source material. So he had a difficult path to walk, and I think he walked it very, very well. Um, and his changes to the ending, I think, were perfectly justified and made perfect sense in terms of the movie um, and saved a lot of um, extra footage earlier on in the movie to set up the ending that we had in the comic book. So I, I was I was very happy with the movie adaptation. And at one time, um, Alan was v very happy with the idea of a movie um, adaptation. But however, his view was soured by his subsequent experience in Hollywood where um, his work wasn't treated with much respect and he personally wasn't treated with much respect. So unfortunately, by the time Watchmen came round, um, he didn't want his name on it. He didn't want any money from it. And by by the way, the movie didn't generate any money because movies never do. But the, th but the thing that it did do... Um, was to was to make maybe a million people buy a copy of the Watchman graphic novel, which meant that a million people who otherwise wouldn't have read Alan's words or seen my pictures did did do that. So even on that level, I thought as an exercise that the Watchman movie was was quite um, quite a positive experience. And do you have any insight into the new HBO show that they're producing at the moment? No, I mean I, I've read stuff on the on the internet like ev, ev, everybody else. Um, we'll have to w have to wait and see on that. But um, I, I, I mean, I feel at least um, translating it into a different medium uh, or utilizing it in a different medium um, is uh, is something other than doing sequels and prequels of the comic book because very much with Watchmen. It was a science fiction novel. It wasn't like the X-Men or the Justice League or the Avengers. It was a complete story that took place in those pages that Alan and I created. And that was all we had to say. So if you spin stuff out of it in comics, then I feel that you're kind of devaluing and diluting what, what Alan and I did. And you're kind of doing a pastiche or something of it, which kind of doesn't feel creative enough. Um, I mean, um, by contrast, I think what um, Grant Morrison and uh, Frank Whiteley did on the multiverse or the multiversity, was it called, where they did a kind of Watchmen take on things, but they did it very cleverly and they added to it and went in different directions with it. That I thought was great. It was kind of approaching material in the way that Alan and I did not aping what Alan and I did and turning what we did into the new standard. And of course that happened in comic books generally after Watchmen and Dark Knight. There were a lot of very dark, gloomy, grim and gritty comic books. And, you know, that was never our intention. We were just showing a possible way of doing things, not the new way to do things. So, I, you know, I suppose really I'd rather see 
although I have no personal issue with them at all, because all freelancers have a right to earn a living and it isn't up to me to say what should or shouldn't be done or what they should or shouldn't do. But I kind of would rather see these people putting their efforts into new material or new approaches or trying to break the mould in the way that Alan and I did back then. Great. Um, so you've, you've done a bit of teaching for us over, over the years, um, but you also brought out a, a really great book, uh, How Comics Work. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, you know, I've, I didn't have an art school education. I'm, you know, I, I'm sort of self-taught and I learned by copying and looking over people's shoulders, as I say, and also by buying every possible book I could find about figure drawing in particular, but about perspective and composition and, you know, um, anatomy and how to do comics. And I, I picked up a lot of the things I know from that. And also along the way, I discovered some things of my own and, um, you know, came up with, with techniques or best practices that I sort of developed. And I'd always thought, you know, I'd, I'd really like to do a book on, on, on how to do comics, but specifically how to do comics, not how to draw or how to do, do perspective. Um, and um, I'd had a taste of uh, doing um, um, a book, uh, which was Watching the Watchman, which was um, an analysis and behind the scenes thing about how Alan and John and I came up with Watchmen. Um, and I was approached by Tim Pilcher, who's a sort of man about comics. He's worked for DC Vertigo and Humanoids. He's written many books about comics. And um, um, he approached me um, and, and said, you know, how about doing a book about comics for um, a publisher that he knew was interested? And I thought that sounded a good idea because I knew that having someone else along as a collaborator would give me a kick up the arse and the thing would actually happen, you know. Um, so basically the way it worked was that Tim and I would talk at length on the, on the phone or in person and he'd kind of transcribe and edit and boil down the, the, uh, the, 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 the chunks of gold from all the gravel that he had in his, uh, in his pan. And, um, that was a rather a confused metaphor there, but I think you know what I mean. That's why I need, need an editor like Tim. And and um, um, and and then he 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 and I also went through all my archives because although I don't particularly hold on to finished artwork that's been published, I have kept hold of nearly all my sketches and thumbnails and scripts and things. So we had loads of loads of material. It was also useful having Tim because rather than me picking my most beautiful drawings, Tim picked the drawings that that showed you how to do it. Um, and of course, a lot of the early drawings you do when you're designing a story or a character aren't particularly attractive. You know, they're a bit rough and ready and first draft stuff. So I think the book um, greatly benefited from having a collaborator. And as I say, the thrust of the book is how comics work. And it tells you how to put, how to write comics, how to pencil, ink, colour, letter. It's got bits about digital. It's got some exercises to do. And it, it's been very well received i was very happy with with the way the book came out which is thanks to tim and to the people at quarto as well um and i'm actually at the moment thrilled to see that it's been nominated for an eisner award as best comics related publication which is which is a huge thrill so um yeah so that 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 was a, a very happy experience and um hopefully it'll it'll help the comic artists of tomorrow to um, know what they're doing a little bit earlier than I did. 
So uh, following that up, uh, you told me earlier in the year that you've got an autobiography coming out as well. Yeah, well, I mean, that again was, you know, over the years I've enjoyed reading other um, artist biographies and autobiographies because you always want to know, you know, the kind of the 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 um, behind the scenes stuff and, and what it actually feels like to be a comic book artist. So I, I thought, yeah, I think the world is now ready for my autobiography. Um, and, but, you know, because... I mean, it's my professional autobiography. I mean, my real autobiography is is about as interesting as anybody else's, you know, in a kind of day-to-day way. But I thought, professionally speaking, I have had quite an interesting career. You know, I, I kind of forced my way into it, if you like, and, um, you know, got to know some people early on who I, I re-met again later in my career and who had a huge influence on the way things turned out and it's a chance to acknowledge them and um, also you know I've been lucky enough to be part of some things like you know 2000 AD which was a revolutionary thing in in comics I was part of the British invasion I got to work with wonderful collaborators like Alan Moore and Pat Mills, John Wagner, great artists like Mike Mike Mignola, uh, Garcia Lopez, Steve Rude and I and you know I had some, I felt some interesting um, anecdotes and experiences to reveal there. So uh, over the course of the past year, I've kind of written it, and I've I've actually written about a hundred thousand words, which is quite a lot for a book. And again, I've got pl- plenty of artwork to um, illustrate it with as well. But the way that I've done it, um, and I kind of slightly swiped the idea from a book about comics uh, called Comics Panel to Panel, which was written by a journalist called Michael Doohan and by Mike Richardson of Dark Horse Comics, which is like an anecdotal history of comics where it's kind of an alphabetical index of anecdotes about the comics business. So I've kind of swiped that idea for my autobiography. So it, it's, it, it doesn't go through my childhood and my early struggles and my later successes um, but it's just an alphabetical collection of anecdotes about people and about comics and about things that have happened to me. So it gives it a nice variety, I think. And it's a book you can dip into and out of. And um, there are some s- stories in there that I haven't told before. As you know, Phil, and as probably people listening to this will know, I am a great one for an anecdote and um, a yarn. So uh, this is this is almost the definitive connection, collection of all my anecdotes but there are lots of things in there that I haven't said publicly before. And there are things I've been in, in, involved with that I haven't kind of had my say about because I really don't want to get involved in being on the internet for any more than I am already. Um, there's no particular score settling. There's, there's, there's no backlash. There's no, no revenge stuff go, going on. It's just, you know, my chance to tell things as I saw them. I'm not saying that that's the way they actually happen, but it's as I saw them. Um, so I think that should be of, of interest to people as well. Um, again, Tim Pilcher is helping me uh, editorially on it. Um, and we spoke to a few people at the London Book Fair and got some interest on it. And we had hoped that it could possibly be out later this year. But I think that that hope is is, is fading. Uh, but it, it's, as I say, it's all done and hopefully it'll be out at the latest uh, next year. Um, so finally, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what you see as the future of comics. 
Well, if I knew what the next big thing was, I'd be doing it rather than talking to you, Phil, obviously. <laughs> but um, um, no, I mean, I think comics are in a very healthy state at the moment. I mean, I think the way that the we, we talked about movies um, earlier, um, I think p- particularly the way that the Marvel movies have have reignited or ignited people's interest in the source source material has had a huge effect i think paradoxically although many people feared that comics appearing on digital devices would harm the sales of real comic books that hasn't proven to be the case and in fact it's what what i believe what has happened is 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 what i believe they call the 50 shades of gray effect in that people read Fifty Shades of Grey on an on electronic on an electronic device, and people weren't aware what they were reading. Rather than if they'd seen them reading the book, they'd have known that they were reading soft porn, um, and so that freed people to read it up. I think that happens with comic book material as well. That people can digitally sample what's what's out there and read it and enjoy it and then be sent to their local comic book store or to their book retailer and actually buy the hard copy of it. So I think digital has actually uh, become a wonderful uh, way of exposing people to to comic content. Um, I think some of the comics that are being produced today are as good as anything that's ever been done. There are some phenomenal artists and writers working out there. Please don't ask me to list them because I always go blank and I always leave out the person I most wanted to mention. Uh, But there's some wonderful talent out there out there and I think the penetration of comics that isn't a Fifty Shades of Grey reference by the way the penetration of comics um, into mainstream booksellers both on online and and in the high street has been wonderful and it's what we always kind of hope for with comics that they would always be um, available locally Um, so I think the future of comics um, looks really bright Um, and I'm sure that the delivery methods will range uh, all, 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 all over, you know, whatever technology is, is current. Obviously, the, the book itself, obviously the ability to read comics uh, through something like Made Far on a digital device. And also a way that something like Magic Leap is going to actually enable you to view comics in spectacular ways that you haven't before. And it's a little difficult because, uh, you know, as with all these new technologies, that they are extensively protected by non-disclosure agreements. So I probably won't say any more there um, other than um, I think that comics will be able to explore and use and gain more exposure through all of these new technologies. And it's something that um, I'm really interested to be a part of because, you know, I've done so many traditional comics. It's really wonderful to have my imagination and my thinking process stretched by trying to figure out the best way to utilise new technology. Um, And, of course, also the fact that there there are now, unlike in my day, there are ways that you can actually do um, comics as a further education option, much like you do it in in Dundee and at at several other uh, um, facilities in the States particularly. Um, you know, um, I think that again, comics are being viewed as something which are a worthwhile way to uh, uh, use your creative powers and, you know, have an effect on culture in general. Yeah, great. Uh, and just finally, Dave, where can we see you over the summer? Are you doing any comic cons, appearances, anything coming up? Yeah, I mean, I, last year I did rather too many appearances. I got rather 
worn out with it all so I, I've cut back on what I'm doing this year I did I went to a wonderful convention in Lake Como Lake Como comic art convention which was which was um, an, an amazing convention in an amazing setting uh, which was specifically for lovers of comic art and there was a there was a wonderful guest list that you know obviously I I was there but um, it, it was Neil Adams and Jim Lee and Adam Hughes and Liam Sharp and um, you know a huge again I'm going to miss out everybody that I meant to mention that that was a fantastic experience um, I'm going to a place called I believe it's pronounced Gijon G I J O N in northern Spain where I was last at sort of twenty twenty or twenty five years ago. Um, for a convention there, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'm also going to be at San Diego um, because um, uh, I have business to do there. And also, not only um, have has our How Comics Work book been nominated for an Eisner, but I'm I'm a, I'm quite choked and, and emotional to say that um, I've been nominated for the Hall of Fame award at the Eisner Awards. So. I've got to be there, if only to see some somebody else win it. Um, and I'm also going to be at um, the New York Comic Con this this year. Um, so that's kind of it. I've got no UK conventions this year, but hopefully next year I'm going to concentrate on doing a few more of those, of which there are an increasing number. Uh, and again, that's great to see comics uh, again, you know, really becoming part of the general cultural scene. Well, thanks very much for your time, Dave. It's been really fascinating to talk to you and uh, good luck with everything that's coming up and we'll look forward to your book coming out either later this year or next year. Thanks, Phil. It's always um, a pleasure to chat with you and, uh, you know, as as I say, I'm I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased to be a part of and a supporter of what you're doing up at University of uh, Dundee and um, hopefully uh, I'll be up there again myself soon.